do like a seller carry, you know, potentially kind of thing. And I've gotten quite a few comments and DMs and stuff like that about it. But the amount of agents and people working with agents that are trying to be investors that don't understand even what seller carry means or understand the basics of seller financing, it's just, it's almost startling because this is also at the same time where I get a lot of questions from other people and agents, especially about sub two. Yeah. How do we get these sub two deals closed? It's like, oh boy. You know what I mean? And, and really you're kind of, ex- it's like exposing like the lack of knowledge from an investment standpoint. Not all agents are like that, but a good chunk of them that are trying to cater to investors. Cause let's be honest, investors are the one doing the most volume, you know, buying and selling. And so it's a good partnership for a lot of agents, but you've got to know your stuff. What's going on, guys? Welcome to today's episode of the Collecting Keys Real Estate Investing Podcast. This is the show where we teach you how to make massive income, not just passive income with your real estate investing business. This is your first time here. I am Mike DeHaan, here with your co-host, Dan Austin. And uh, we talk about real estate investing whenever we feel like on these Wednesday episodes that we dub the Mike and Dan Show. And we are sort of, I guess I am just getting back after a uh, little week off with my parents in Colorado. And uh, it's funny, I always like taking a little bit of time away because I tend to be kind of overbearing on the business sometimes or have my fingers involved in a lot of different things. And uh, stepping back a little bit always, I won't say it like shows like the leaks, but it it shows like the little gaps that we do have and it makes it easier to fix them because Mm -hmm. I think a big thing that affects all business owners is that when you are working in your business as well as on the business, you don't realize how many things are kind of directly influencing all accidentally. Yeah, and the other challenge with that is, is um, just from a leadership standpoint too, is when people are looking to you for an answer, even though they're ready to make the move, but they want your confirmation, when you're not there, they have to make those moves. And so then it kind of reignites that motivation and self-direction. I mean, at least they, you would hope so. I mean, there's always the so, team yeah. members that their default is... Things still yeah. break, but... There's team members who their default is always to do nothing, which is a whole other problem. But right, for sure. And I think that's like a leak or a hole. You're like, okay, well, that's a problem. Because uh-huh. generally speaking, when you ask people what to do when they want something, when they're asking you what they should do, and if you turn that around, they usually have the right answer. I would say eight out of ten times, if not nine out of ten times, when I've done that with people, they have the right answer. Yeah, they just don't have the confidence or the confirmation to move forward with it. Exactly. Even this morning, we were having a whole debate with one of our sales guys about a deal that the person like wanted money up front. The seller wanted money up front to be able to go buy the next house. And they were trying to figure out how to approach the situation. And we were basically like, well, what do you think we should do? He's like, well, I think what we need to do is we need to close and we need to do a hold back of the funds and then they can have like X amount of money released and go buy the new house. And I was like, perfect. There you go. You already knew the answer. Why are we waiting five days to do this? Yes. You know, it doesn't make any sense. Yes, the alternative that the seller pitched wasn't it like, give me all the cash up front for a closing and then I'll move. Yeah, that's exactly. It's like, you know that's not going to work. And in your head, you know it's not going to work. So like, just, yeah, step back, step by step, think through this. You know the answer. Sure. I think something that's easy to sort of forget when you're in this business and you're doing a real estate business, any sort of volume where you're doing a lot of transactions on a regular basis is you tend to commoditize properties right? Like you don't really realize that the seller has probably bought and sold a couple properties in their life, maybe. 
cops, right? So they don't even understand the possibilities of things like a hold back or like flexible closing <laughs> or, you know, creative financing or all the different things that us as investors need to bring forward and have them in our tool belt. And you tend to sort of take it for granted. And when they make these sort of outlandish asks, uh -huh. I don't know, because sometimes throw people for a loop if you're not fully prepared for them. When there usually is a yeah. easy solution to whatever problem they're facing that is beneficial for us. Absolutely. Without needing to do something silly, like give them all the money for their house before you close. I know. <laughs> yeah, before they close and they can stay there as long as they need to until they find a place. Yeah. Sounds like a great deal for us, right? Right. Yeah, I think it's a big part of it is they see a problem, right? They have a problem they want to solve. it. to your point, they don't have necessarily the knowledge and experience we do. So you need to see the problem through their eyes, through their mm -hmm. lens and understand that, but then explain it to them with your expertise and show them. Because I mean, you know, I've always realized we, I think we realized this early on. It's like in this business to be successful, you're solving problems and you're helping people who don't usually know or understand the situation they're in. And oftentimes they're in that situation because they're un, they have been unable to make a decision and that inaction has put them into some level of distress. Not always, but a lot of times. Most of the time, yeah. Or, or like they're not an actual enough person that they realize that there are challenges that they're going to have to deal with and they just don't want to deal with. Mm -hmm. Right? Even if they're not actually in distress, they like look at it and like, that sounds like a pain in the ass. I'd rather just pay you to take care of it by giving you the house at a discount, which does happen very, very often. In fact, I was talking to one of our partners today. He's up in Maine. And, uh, he was, we were kind of going back and forth about this because he's worried about some of the ethical issues could being a realtor and, you know, wholesaling and buying properties. And he's like, well, what happens when, you know, we buy it for 150 and then the next week I have the thing listed for like the low 200s. Like, aren't they going to be like, why didn't they pay me that? I'm like, you think that they don't know what their property's worth, dude? <laughs> yeah. Think they're that dumb. They're not yep. stupid. Yeah, yeah, with the internet, they fully recognize that. It's like by buying at that 150 point, you know, in this, in this particular one, it's a rental property, it's a multi-unit. We're buying it with the tenants in there. Like he recognizes that we're going to have to deal with that. He doesn't want to have to do it. I understand he has a personal relationship with his tenants. That's even worse. So you have to go to this person that he has a relationship with and say, hey, I'm going to ask you to leave. He doesn't want to have that conversation. He's willing to pay us $60,000 to have that for To not have that. You, know, you bring up a good point with the internet. Like I love having Zillow because A, I can go and look at stuff really quickly, but also B, the sellers can look at it too. So they can be just as informed. You have a conversation with them. You can really look at the root of their problems and you guys can be on a level playing field. It's not like you're playing a game of cat and mouse. Like, oh, I wonder if they notice their property could be worth more. It's like, no, their problem is worth more than what they are willing to do to solve it. Exactly. It's a weird thing. I, I don't know if it's like, like realtors worry about that because they're like, I don't know, they, they they firmly know like the real value or if it's because of like the typical rules and regulations around it or. Here's what I think it is. I think in the realtor space, especially now that like off-market direct-to-seller has become kind of a, just not, I want to say popular, yeah. but it's just more mainstream. There's more of us. There's more people like us doing this type of business on a sophisticated scale level that you can't ignore it anymore. And I think in that space, there's a lot of poo-pooing on wholesalers, right? It's, I, we, in the military, we used to call like the badge protectors. Like when you're going through to get like a certification or a badge, there's these guys that they want to make sure that only the best of the best in their eyes get the badge. So, because they're wearing it, they want other people that look like them to wear it. And so in this, with the realtors, it's the same thing. They're, they're protecting their interest by 
making sure everybody thinks wholesalers are, are poo-poo and that don't do business with them. They're, you know, they're doing things that are unethical and all these sorts of things. It's like agents, trust me, are doing plenty of unethical things. I can tell that you have a two-year-old at home so you just say poo-poo twice in the same sentence. <laughs> Sorry. A little doo-doo, a little <laughs> poo-poo. <Yes. laughs> You've been to war and now this is how you yeah. talk. And now um, I talk like this, yeah, exactly. So. It makes sense. And that's kind of explaining to them too, is like realize that most realtors that are vastly against it, like they are threatened by the business model uh-huh. and, you know, they're jealous of the money that you can make from these deals. They don't know how to monetize a certain way. And also too, it, it like realtors have their place. Like there's tons of people that don't want that discount. You know, they don't have anything that they want to trade for that equity or any sort of situation where that makes sense. Perfect. They can go and sell the traditional way. That totally works out. But also most sellers that work with us, they are not a good fit for the on-market model. Yeah, that's why they're working with us. That's why they're working with us. We have realtors that refer us to people like that because they're like, yeah, that's not going to work on market. Exactly. Yeah. So it's just... You know the other incredible thing, and I'm not trying to poo-poo on anybody or real estate agents, but... I posted one of our Airbnbs for sale and I just put, hey, well, willing to do like a seller carry, mm-hmm. you know, poten- you know, potential kind of thing. And I've gotten quite a few comments and DMs and stuff like that about it. But the amount of agents and people working with agents that are trying to be investors that don't understand even what seller carry means or like understand the basics of seller financing, it's just, it's almost startling. Because this is also at the same time where I get a lot of questions from other people and agents, especially about sub two. How do we get these sub two deals closed? It's like, yeah, oh boy. You know what I mean? And, and really you're kind of, ex- it's like exposing like the lack of knowledge from an investment standpoint. Not all agents are like that, but a good chunk of them that are trying to cater to investors. Because let's be honest, investors are the one doing the most volume, you know, buying and selling. And so it's a good partnership for a lot of agents but you've got to know your stuff. I mean, like, I guess, what don't they understand about it? And, and I guess to explain this deal for people, so we have this property that we had been renting to an Airbnb arbitrager for a while. For us, for like long-term, it's not really like the best deal. We don't want to have it as an Airbnb on ourselves again because we had that previously and it was a lot of work. We got other shit to do. It's just not worth our time. And we are looking to sell it on to sell our finance because we technically have a long-term debt, but we have a prepayment penalty on that. And so like if we go and we sell it with the prepayment penalty from the CSR lender, we'll basically walk away with like almost no profit. And so it makes sense for us to sell it on terms to somebody with us carrying a note so that we can recover our full equity in a few years. Essentially, we just wrap the, we'll do what's called like a, a seller wrap or wrap around mortgage on it. So we'll keep the mortgage in place. It's kind of like a sub two, not a sub two. But you're basically, they're taking that property sub to that mortgage, plus we're wrapping around our equity in that and then selling it for a interest and amortization just like we would. In, and then both mortgages, we get paid and then the original lender gets paid as well. Exactly. So what they don't understand about it is that that's possible. It's one of them, that you could do that, that you could sell it. And it's like, what is the difference between sub two and a wrap? It's like having to explain that sort of stuff with people in the details. So it's like really, it's just, you know, mind blowing to me that people have clients that they want to represent. They, of course, like I said, they know what sub two is. They've heard that term, of course, because Pace Mortgage done a great job of telling everybody how great of a of a transaction style that is, and that's what every investor needs to do. But they don't know anything deeper than that. Yeah, you know, the thing that drives me crazy right now about all of those people, like not those investors, same topic a little bit. I've seen noticed noticed this is a reoccurring trend 
on all the sub two posts and videos and things like that is they like to make these really bold statements like, like I bought this property and I'm making this amount of money. I bought it sub two and I didn't have to put any of my own money into it. Uh-huh. And they don't give any sort of like disclosure around how much they actually had to bring to the table. Even if it's from an investor or a friend or their dad or their freaking, I don't know, IRA. <laughs> is that not your own money? If it's a business that has a trustee, do they consider that like not their own money? Probably. But like they completely leave out the most important part of the fact that to buy that house, they were still buying it above retail price and getting fifty dollars to $100,000 from somebody else uh-huh. to buy it. But they're super proud of their 4% interest rate that they got. It just doesn't make any sense. Like, why do they keep doing it? And the thing that's so brilliant is with their whole like gator lending thing too, what these dumbasses do is they just borrow money from each other on these terms that aren't favorable to anybody. And now everybody's losing money. I know. It's a terrible situation. Right? You have the person that bought the property that's not cash flowing. You have the investor that's now parked their cash and doesn't know when the fuck they're going to get back. Doesn't make any sense. There's no money down real estate, dog. It's somebody's money. Well, they should pretend like it's no money down. It doesn't make any sense. Even Pace did this post about how he bought this property with no money down. But then he threw in that he like paid the guy that brought it to him a $20,000 assignment fee. Who the fuck paid that? Yeah. That came from somebody. <laughs> yeah. And that this is one good point to make too about creative financing. Like the money has to come from somewhere. Yeah. Right. Like there's no other lender bringing the full sum of money for the purchase price. Like there is no. a loan and then there's a difference between the loan and the purchase price. Somebody is paying that. Yeah. It's usually you. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, and if you have people that are willing to lend you money on favorable terms, that's great. But I mean, this is something that I'm still trying to comprehend. And, and somebody in our scale community asked about bringing on a speaker to come and talk to them about talk about building your private money pipeline. And I'll be honest, like I have yet to find someone that actually has a good answer for how to do this organically. Like a lot of people will talk about how it's like, oh, I just post on Facebook and people offer to give me money. And unless you're like a really big name, I cannot see that happening. It doesn't happen. Right, it doesn't make sense. And so like my kind of joke response to him when he asked about that, I was like, okay, step one, come from a rich family or work in an industry where there's a lot of rich people. <laughs> yeah. And then step two, find the people from step one who don't have a good understanding of investments in real estate and convince them that an 8% return is actually a good deal for them, right? Like, honestly, it doesn't make any sense at all. Yeah, the, the best way that I've found looking back, like with people wanting to invest is doing something for a while and telling people about it. And then eventually people see that you're successful over a long period of time. Mm-hmm. And they're like, okay, I kind of want to get in that game. Like I've had a few people recently in the last few months just call and say, hey, I would love to give you some money. The problem is with a lot of people when that happens is they are like, well, let's just go 50-50. I'll bring part of the down payment. I'll be the money guy. It's like, well, part of the down payment is the money guy. Mm-hmm. Totally. I'm the money guy. <laughs> I mean, if that's the case. So like their their terms, a lot of people... It's just like any other lead source, right? You have to work with and filter through and find the, the right people to work with when it's in the private lending space. Because really, ideally, what you want, Mike, you mentioned is like, what the rich people that don't know or don't want to invest in real estate themselves, but they'd want to be in the game. Totally. Like, that's the goal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, and, and if they're, you're doing like short-term stuff, you're doing flips and like people are going to like lend you at 8% for like a few months or whatever, like that's different, uh-huh. right? It's probably some, some extra cash. But you hear about some of these people that are buying these like long-term rentals with these people, they're paying like a six or 7% prep. I would say like, that's honestly a little bit shadier yeah. than being like the wholesaler who's lying to a seller about the buy of their property to get a deal. 
Like what you're doing is you're lying to that person about their opportunity with that money and instead parking it into your deal at 6%. What do they mean by that? What do you mean they're, they're being shady by getting the lender to give them a long-term loan? I don't understand. By getting this random grandma to go and get a HELOC on her house, right? Or to like take out her retirement and give it to oh, them at 6% so they can have this long-term rental property that they pay interest only on. So they're basically trying to pitch the benefits of real estate, but really they're getting benefits of like a CD. Exactly, right? And they'll, and they use all this, these similar sort of like bullshit sales tax of like, oh, well, you're going to get a check every month. You don't get that with the stock market. Yeah. It's like, oh, it's secured by real estate. It's going to be secured all the time. Like the stock market can go down, all these different things. Uh-huh. Valid statements. But also if you look at the true opportunity cost for that person and you are honestly trying to convince them that giving you long-term money at below um, inflation yeah. is a good deal. It's like you're more, you're just as much of a crook as the wholesaler that's lying to a, a seller about the value of their house. Especially because like, in my opinion, you want, you want your investors to A, be able to sustain a loss because that's always a risk, but also be informed enough to be able to make a good decision because it's really easy to go and get a grandma to loan you money on a shitty deal because she's going to trust you. A lot of times private lenders are lending in you. They're lending to you, not to the asset, right? They see you, they trust you. And that's why when I say people, you do something well enough, long enough, people will start saying, I want to participate. Can I loan you money? And that's how a lot of private lenders come in. But like, if you take your grandmother's HELOC money, for her whatever mobile home that she lives in. And now she's going to be out. I'm not trying to paint a really bad, morbid picture here. But like, you know what I mean? And and you lose it on a flip. That's a problem. You know, I have a friend that that happened to, right? Loaned money on a mobile home and never got their money back. And so if, did he actually not get that money back? I know you're talking about, we talked about this briefly in the car when we were somewhere. Different guy. Different yeah, guy. I don't know. Okay. Actually, I should, I should ask Troy that if he's doing well. But yeah, he's, he, he's had his money out for a while with that guy too. Um, and so there's certain things where like the deals aren't, there's risk associated with it, I guess is what I'm saying. And if they're not able to understand that, then you're, you're being a little unfair by not sharing those risks and helping them understand and analyze the deal. Totally. And, and like, honestly, if you're being truthful to your private investors, what you can offer them should match up with what their goals actually are. Right. And it should actually get them an amount of money that makes sense you know, and looking at their time horizon, what their needs are, it's just like working with a seller. They have their goals and you need to match up what you can offer them as a borrower with their debt. Right. You know, and I think it kind of gets out of hand. And this is something else that's been really interesting recently. I've been getting hit up on Instagram regularly about this, is people asking us where we get our private money lenders from. Like there's like some like weird source, like how we were able to get so much private money that we, you know, bought so many rentals over a short period of time. Uh-huh. And I tell people, it's like, oh, we use hard money loans and most of it was our own cash. They don't believe you? People like lose their fucking minds <laughs> yeah. that that's how it went. They don't believe me. Yeah. Like, honestly, yeah, that's literally what we did is we had an active enough wholesale and flipping business that we used our own funds and we used hard money lenders a lot. But the whole OPM, other people's money thing has gotten so out of hand. There's a ton of people that don't even consider hard money an option. Yeah, it's a great option. It's helped us build a great portfolio, do lots of flips, do lots of projects, double close on things. Yeah, and it, it's it. I don't know why it's kind of turned that way. People have this weird aversion to like institutional money to the point that like, I was even talking to somebody else earlier today and they were saying that they have a line of credit and they're using that to close on properties and then they're gonna hold on to it in that line of credit while they go and refinance into long-term debt, okay? But their concern was like, well, it's gonna eat up my whole line of credit. And I was like, 
Well, dude, what you do is you go and you get a hard money loan. Uh-huh. You use that line of credit to cover your down payment and then your monthly holding. And then you have like 90% of your line of credit left. Like, what are you talking about? Yes. Didn't even want to consider that. He was like, nope, not going to do it. I'm like, like, what are you concerned about? The line of credit holder is still going to steal your primary residence. Just like the hard money lender is. Right. Exactly. That's an interesting perspective because, yeah, I guess there are quite a few people that are talking and there's always like this, um, it doesn't even get me going, like this dick measuring contest about like, oh, I can get it for eight and one or my lender does seven and two. It's like, who cares? Like I know. if I'm paying 12% interest or 8% interest, like I'm going in there with a purpose, I'm underwriting it with that. And yeah, so maybe at the end of the deal, it's, you know, with the average household price, it's a, a few thousand dollar difference. But people get so wrapped around the axle on like how much their monthly interest is. And I get it. You want it to be as cheap as possible. So if you can get it. But also, I don't want to go have a colonoscopy to get an 8% interest rate when I can just go to buy a local hard money lender who I know very well that's going to give me the loan, no questions asked within 48 hours. Mm-hmm. And I can keep going and buy three more of that. Week. Yeah, totally. You know, it's just, I don't know. I feel like in the past little bit, it's gotten extra out of hand with people that are pursuing the OPM, other people's money model. Yeah. It's because you keep seeing all these like dorks on social media, like these like 24-year-old kids. And they're like, I bought... 10 million in apartments with none of my own money. And it's like, right. yeah, but your dad is a developer. No, your dad bought it. Yeah. Have, have you seen that? There's this, it's like an honest TikTok or real whatever that's been going around. to the stand-up comedian. Oh, I have. Who? Yes, I know you're about to say. But he he's on stage and he's like this young kid and he's like, so, oh, he's like, you're, you know, you're pretty young. He's like, what do you do? And he goes, I own a real estate development business. And he goes, you own a real estate development business? Like, you're super young. And he goes, oh, well, I work for my dad's real estate <laughs> development business. And he was like, this motherfucker yeah, yeah, looks exactly. me dead in the face and said, I own a real estate development business. No, <laughs> your dad does and you work for him. Like that is very, very different. I've seen that. It's so different. Oh, that's hilarious. Yeah, that's about it. That sums it up. That sums it up. Yeah, and it's like not, and yeah, just using other people's money is also not that easy. Like just give it a break. No, it's not. And people you know, trivialize it. And then they see like, you know, Pace talk about how all of those people are like these other people. It's like, yeah, because they built a community and a brand where they have now gone and convinced a bunch of other people to come in there and invest with them because they realize that it's more difficult. And again, if it aligns with the investor's goals, that's fine. Like we have a debt fund. We, yeah, we pay people out and mm-hmm. 9% pref on that. Yep. But it's usually short term, right? They're looking to park money for a year. That makes sense. They're not looking to park money into your rental property for the next five to 10 years mm-hmm. while you sit there and like try to figure out what to do with it because you've never bought a property before. Like that doesn't make any sense. Right. That's not a good idea. Yeah. And I think for us with using private lending and other people's money is like we've always had a way to pay them off. Like, right. Like we've never taken more money than we really could afford to take. Yeah. Where I think some people get in trouble is they do a private money loan for one property and then the next one, and then they've got three. They have no way to even cover those properties if something goes wrong, mm-hmm. let alone if one thing goes wrong. So for us, we, and we, I feel like we dipped our toes in and we had a private lender starting out, great friend of ours. He's awesome dude, awesome lender. And anytime we needed money, he was able to fund deals, but we always had in the back pocket, like, hey, if something goes sideways here, we're, we'll make sure that he's made whole and we have the ability to exit. It's one thing to say, like, I take care of other people's money better than my own. It's another thing to actually do it and pay people when you, and we've done that. We've done that. Yeah. I mean, even this past Christmas. Yeah. He, in that private lender that I just talked about, like, he was like, hey, I need my money back our years up and I, I'd really like to not extend. And we're like, perfect. And we wrote yeah. him a check. And it, it wasn't fun. We had to go and like open these lines of credits and figured it out. But that's the you know, promise that we made there. No, 
it's a weird part of the space right now that I think is, I want to say like slightly alarming because I feel like it's similar to a lot of the creative financing things or something you think people are doing where you have people that are not fully responsible or don't fully understand the seriousness of what they're doing that are going out there and trying to figure out how to hack the system. Uh-huh. Right. And it's so, I don't know. There's no fast way, man. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know to tell you. The longer I'm in the game, the more I realize that it, it just takes time. It does. You know, and don't be afraid to use institutional money. Like these businesses that are out there that want to give you money and see how it's going to cost you a little bit. But honestly, if 12 and one versus eight and one are the difference between your deal being profitable and not, then you should probably not buy that deal. It's just really freaking tight. It's probably not a deal. Cool. Speaking of all that, do we have, where are we at with our commercial deal? Do we have our loan figured out? This is, speaking of debt, let's make this the theme of this one, but we're buying a commercial property right now. If you listen to my Friday Focus last week, talked about some lessons learned with this, but the whole debt process with it has been different. Because we've had, apparently you can, when you do commercial stuff, there's so many different options you can get from traditional lenders. Mm-hmm. We found one that says they're going to work with us and they're going to give us construction funds and like different things, but they're asking for tons of different material with it. So where, where are we at with all that stuff? Uh, yeah, we're just still waiting to hear back. The banks are closed on Mondays because it's President's Day holiday. It's been like a month. I know. <laughs> I So yeah. the last I pinged her at the end of last week was that your and my financials were complicated. And so they had to go through it because we have several K-1s from different businesses and you know, to a smaller community bank, we're probably like the freaking Wild West Cowboys when they see our shit. Yeah. Like they love our idea. They know we have money, right? They like, I told her, I was like, we could honestly, if we have to, we could just pay cash for this. Like, but we're trying to avoid doing that. Like, because we don't want to hurt liquidity because we don't, you know, we're stabilizing a property right now. We've got other things in the pipeline. And so it's just a matter of getting them to sign off at the board. So I'm hoping first thing tomorrow morning, we get an update because we kind of need that because our due diligence period ends tomorrow at 5 p.m. I know. Yeah, because if we don't have like kind of clear to go, like I don't know if we have enough time yet to yeah. get the funding lined up. I know, exactly. So I think we'll have to either get an extension on the due diligence or figure just figure something out, you know, here in the next little eight, 24 hours. So, you know, nothing like this living on the edge of seat of your pants right there, so. I mean, we've always done that, though. That's kind of part of being a, in the off-market world is you deal with weird things as they come through. I think that's the reason we've been able to be successful. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah, and this is no different, right? It's no different. This is a um, good example like to talk about. So this is a commercial property. Deal was brought to us, and it's owned by the terrible landlord that Mike and I have done business-ish with over the years. We walked a property that was his that was the worst property we've ever seen. Worst property. And he basically was like, I'm not selling it for any less than 200 or whatever his price was. It was stupid. It was worth like yeah. 75. I don't even know what our offer was. Anyway, Probably less than that, probably 50. It was probably 50, yeah. Like we're stepping over the needles and, and holes in the roof, everything. So this commercial property was probably performing when he bought it, but is a year ago is when he bought it, I think a year or two years ago. And now it is underperforming. It's It's got three tenants of the 11 available spaces, but we're, we're working through a plan to reposition it as an office space and trying to figure out how to maximize the rents and reduce the expenses, of course, because it's commercial. We are going to base this on net operating income. And so we want we want to be, a, be able to raise the value to at least a million bucks. We're paying right now we're in a contract of 585. So I would say a million would be like our break, our break point of like, that's at least where we want to be in the next 12 months for, from a valuation standpoint. 
but we don't know anything about this. This is like when we bought our first deal or we started wholesaling. I remember back buying my first rental property. I didn't know like the end result. I had kind of an idea. And even then I had more of a framework with commercial, just a little bit, you know, more unknown. Also at a time where in the news, everybody's talking about how office space is dead. It's commercial office space is not a good idea. This and that, (laughs) where we're kind of taking a gamble on this, but I think it's a calculated gamble. Point being though, is it's like, I don't know. At some point you just have to do it and learn from it. Like, I don't think we'll lose money per se, but we just might not make as much as we want to make. That's the way I look at it from a risk analysis standpoint. Yeah, well, maybe not in the short term, right? We kind of talked about this as well as one of the things that's challenging for us with this is on the residential side, as we've done so many flips or the cycle time is so quick on the rehab, being able to rent it out. We're used to being able to make all of our money and get things stabilized within a couple of months. Whereas that commercial stuff, just going to take longer. It's a lot longer. And this property, it's in a great location in Spokane. You know, it's where I would call is kind of like the path of progress for commercial assets like this. Because right now, it's a little ways from downtown. People are leaving downtown. They want to be close to their home. You know, there are a lot of smaller businesses up in the area. And I don't think that we would regret owning property in that specific spot. Right. You know, it doesn't make sense for like the office space. Like I bet you look at the building, it's like, well... I don't know. It could be like a medical office. It could be a dental office. Like it has all those vibes and the setup to do that. It just needs to be outfitted appropriately and marketed to the appropriate person, uh-huh. you know? And there's so many different things you could do that make it harder to analyze. Cause like with a residential property, you're like, cool, I'm going to put tenants in here. I'm going to do it as like a midterm rental might be a little bit different versus a short-term rental versus a long-term rental. You know, we never really strayed into all the other weird niche stuff that you can do with residential stuff. But I mean, it just just feels like there's more gray areas. And the difference is from like residential, which will be like 20 or 30% more rent. If you go a different way, this is like 2X. Yeah. Right. You know, it's a huge difference. Absolutely. And and it really just goes back to the point I wanted to make was like, this is what we do in the residential space with our wholesaling off-market business, right? If you're listening to this and that's the game you're in or you want to be in it, this is what you do. You have to take a leap. You're going to go in and buy an underperforming asset. Your job is to take an underperforming asset, which is how you can get it at a discount and make it perform. That's it. That's what it is. And so for us, this is just another underperforming asset that we have to kind of figure out. And to your point is it's going to be a longer cycle time than we're used to because it is commercial. It's just going to take a little bit longer. Everything's just, you know, leasing it. There's, I don't know, for every hundred people looking to buy a new house, there's probably like one or two looking for an office space, if that. Yeah, for sure. Right. You know, I mean... But the thing is, it'll be more sticky, hopefully, like so windship and stuff. But the money piece has just proven challenging. Yeah, it's different. You can't just go get a hard money loan like that. We found that. You can't, yeah. I mean, most hard money loans won't even lend on it, you know. So I'm proud to announce, if you're looking for investors, if you want to go take a HELOC on your home and give us $585,000. <laughs> other people's money. At a 6% press, we'll pay you back in five years. And you'll make significantly. <laughs> For those of you that don't think we don't script these shows, this proves it right there. That was the whole lead up into this. Well, yeah, it's secured <laughs> by a real asset. It's going to be fixed. You'll get a check every single month. Don't buy property. Just be the bank. Yeah, there's even a guy in the basement illegally renting. That's the other thing, too, with the, the other people's money stops drives me crazy is I'm seeing these like C-level investor gurus and like they repeating these posts over and over again. It's like, don't buy real estate, just be the bank instead. Give yeah. me money at eight to 10% and don't have to deal with any other bullshit. I'm like, 
what, what are you doing? It's always random people that I'm like, have you actually done deals? I can't tell. I really don't think you have. If you weren't, you know, riding on... It's usually less, as we found out. Dude, like always. When you're talking to the big players and they don't really have stories that match any anything that you've done, you're like, okay, you've done quite a bit less. Totally. It's funny. Cole Red Johnson, who is a very A-level operator. Yep, solid dude. That was on our show a little while back. He made this post I thought was really funny. Let me find it really quick. I thought like this was just so on brand with how we currently feel. Of course, I'm not freaking Instagram. It's not going to load. But uh, it was basically like back when I started real estate, there was like a hundred influencers that I wanted to connect with or I wanted their business. He said, now that I've actually grown a business, I've met most of these people, I realized there's actually only like two. <laughs> That's so true. Like, God, it's so true. so true. Anyway, cool. Anything else on business side that we need to go into? I think we got off our high horse about. Yeah. I don't um, think so. OPM now, but yeah. I don't know. What's going on? What's fresh? Yeah, I think that's all we got. So closing tails. The year's going well, actually. I mean, what are we in February? I mean, I feel like this spring might be a fun time. I mean, we signed around number 20 over the weekend. Yeah. 20 on the year over the weekend. So, I mean, we're, what, seven weeks into the year? We got 20 deals. I won't be upset about that. No. We can get them all closed out. We have a couple that are on the rocks, but for the most part, they all seem to be doing pretty good. Yeah. I mean, just always something always something it seems like we're pushing things left or right on the calendar but that's okay that's just to be expected you get these things signed you got to push them out a week two weeks sometimes three months you never know yeah i will say the thing that is good about just getting that flip is looking at our metrics and stuff the marketing has gotten has been a little bit better but not like way better but our signing rate is much better which means the team is performing well Mm -hmm. which is always like the big indicator right because a lot of them too have been like longer term follow-ups and create challenging negotiations. Yeah. So it's good to see the the sales team parent along, which is always kind of one of the the hardest parts of this whole business to get that optimized. Yeah. That's super valid, especially because like we have a, a sales team that, you know, grows and ebbs and flows. And I feel like right now we have some a great team that's they're all, you know, they're all at a really good spot in their development set. Right. They've all got the skills and they've all kind of heard the the stories of how follow up matters. They're learning the skills. That's the other part about this stuff is you can be an A-plus salesperson, but you got to learn some skills in real estate to be able to think on your feet and in solution, right? You know, in the moment. It's helpful. Which is always more challenging than you would think. And if you've been in this for a while Uh or you've been studying real estate like intensely, like realize that most people that apply to work for you as an acquisitions manager, even if they have real estate experience, if you're the business owner, I guarantee you they are not as like in the weeds as you are about it. They probably had some sales role in the past because if they were, they wouldn't be applying to work for you. They would have their own business. Absolutely. And it's so true. (laughs) So anyways, yeah. all right, we'll wrap that up there. So cool. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. We appreciate all of your time. Shoot us a follow on Instagram. I'm at Mike underscore invest. Dan is at investor man. Dan, and if you want our free course, teach you how to do subject twos the correct way and not the... uh, you know, the guy with the peace sign on his headway, go to clickingkeys.com slash sub two and uh, you can grab it there. So thanks for listening, everybody. And we'll talk to you next week. See you.